Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening at long last to the Bible Geek. And of course, by now, I guess you know, though you may have tried to repress it, that uh, that is Robert M. Price. And indeed, uh, it is, it is. Uh, so, lots of questions that have been waiting for a long time. And let's get right to them. This from, oh, let's see, uh, Ward Thomas from Vienna, Virginia. I guess if you abbreviated both of them, but have half of the, 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 voom. Anyway, says, my latest reading involves a chapter-for-chapter chapter review of Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, along with the refutation books of yourself, or by yourself, and Earl Doherty, another very fine writer. I first read Strobel's book not long after it was published in 1998, before I had any exposure to critical biblical scholarship, and found it credible then, even compelling. But exposure to critical biblical scholarship... Whoops, I'm sorry, but having listened to your podcast for several years now and read many of your books and those of several other critical scholars, I find the axe grinding of Strobel and his experts tedious and frustrating before I even get to your devastating critiques. Thanks for all the enlightenment. Was that a Bob Hope? slogan? Uh, in the course of this, I came upon the quotation of Papias by Eusebius, in which Papias mentions um, the following. That is true, the presbyter used to say. Uh, Mark, who had been Peter's interpreter, wrote down carefully, but not in order, all that he remembered of the Lord's sayings and doings. Shortly thereafter, Eusebius again quotes Papias, saying of Matthew, uh, Matthew compiled the sayings in the Aramaic language, and everyone translated as well as he could. The sayings reference jumped out at me. Could it refer to the long-lost Q saying source? I did a bit of online research and found I was not alone in this thought. It goes back at least as far as Schleiermacher and appears to have been espoused more recently by uh, Dennis R. MacDonald, two favorites of mine. Unfortunately, biases seem to come into play with Q. Etta Linnemann denies a Papias reference, but she seems motivated to deny an early Q Christian movement that lacked a resurrection theology. Where standeth the geek on the Papias reference? And are there any other possible references to Q among the Church Fathers? Well, one thing, Etta Linnemann was a Boltmannian and wrote some books from that standpoint, but uh, in much later in life, she somehow became a uh, an anti-critical fundamentalist. Uh, very strange, and fundamentalist publishers began to do these later books of apologetics. It's real weird. Um, 
But, of course, you'd need to read the books for yourself. I'm just saying how it struck me. Um, so I, I wouldn't be too surprised that she'd have a, like I say, a bias, a reason to want to um, deny this. Because I think she wound up thinking the Gospels were all written by eyewitnesses, etc., etc. Uh, on the, um, the uh, Papias thing, uh, I really... Do not know what to think. Uh, the, these quotes are suggestive, provocative, but I don't know that they prove anything. The idea that he's talking about Q uh, would make sense, uh, and and I guess uh, lacking any other alternative, it uh, takes the prize as the most probable theory, but it's, it is pretty tenuous even at that. I mean, of course, that, that's not so bad if you keep in mind the inevitably um, conjectural character of all of these theories, but plenty of them have more going for them than that. F.F. Bruce said the same thing. This was a way of trying to hold on to Papias, though I don't really see why anybody would, given the tall tales he tells elsewhere. Sort of discredits him as a witness, I'd say. On the one hand, and source criticism on the other, because uh, F.F. Bruce is willing to go along with a Mark Q. hypothesis, and uh, and he was able to plug it in to Papias by saying that Q. might well have been that, and and if and that, that if Papias is right, saying that Matthew compiled Q. Well, what do you know? We do kind of have an apostolic. Uh, uh, evangelist there. It's a way, it's like a modern way of doing what they did with Mark and Luke in the early church, right? Where they said that, okay, there wasn't an apostle Luke, a disciple Luke, but uh, hmm, what if he was the uh, sidekick of uh, Paul? Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Maybe he uh, wrote down what Paul preached, and Irenaeus is already saying that. Of course, it's based on uh, the the uh, thing that Papias is quoted as saying about Mark being the uh, secretary of Peter, writing down the stuff he remembered Peter saying, and uh, which you know that isn't Papias. And I, however, as uh, D. F. Strauss pointed out long ago in the nineteenth century. What we know about uh, what we surmise, I mean, what the evidence seems to indicate about uh, both Mark and Matthew, uh, it uh, it doesn't really seem like that Papias is even necessarily talking about the books we refer to under that name. After all, there were other ones. There's the infancy gospel of Matthew, or what has traditionally been called the gospel of pseudo-Matthew, uh, yeah, as if the regular canonical one under that name is really by Matthew. Not not likely. That's why I always refer to it in print as the infancy gospel of Matthew. Uh, and, uh, oh, there was the belief of St. Jerome and others that there was a Hebrew gospel of Matthew, which was uh, apparently the gospel according to the Hebrews, but that was no doubt just his conjecture as to what the heck that was and where it came from and uh, so forth. Uh, so it, it, there's really no way to know. And the same, I think, is true of Mark. Uh, what book is it that is uh, a writing down of what Peter taught or preached about Jesus? Well, there was no hint of that in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, not only is there no explicit claim, but uh, it 
it doesn't really even fit that. I'll tell you what it does fit, though, the kerygmata uh, of Peter, the preachings of Peter, as well as the uh, the journeyings uh, of Peter. And uh, so he may well have been talking about that. Who the heck knows? And uh, Bart Ehrman, I'm pleased to see, uh, has uh, pointed that out. Yeah, we don't know. We can't take for granted that um, that Papias was even talking about the Gospels we know of. So um, I'd say uh, that uh, it's all conjecture, but that's, again, pretty tenuous. I don't know of any other... Uh, references to uh, what might be Q in Church Fathers. However, that does at least lead me to bring up the fact that Thomas uh, is pretty much the same kind of thing, the same genre as Q. And, of course, the existence of Thomas, a compilation of sayings, is one of the big arguments for the plausibility of Q. Uh, and, uh, well, here's another one. And I would say whatever source Al-Ghazali used in his book, uh, uh, The Revival of the Religious Sciences, he was a great Sufi mystic, uh, he must have had what I like to call Sufi Q, and, uh, because that seems to have been a long set of sayings ascribed to Jesus, probably by Sufis, but who knows how much of it comes from Syrian monasticism, which was a great influence on early Islam. I uh, put together this Sufi cue as the sayings of Jesus in my pre-Nicene New Testament, the idea being that, well, we don't actually have Q, so I didn't want to put it in there as um, Bob Miller did, Robert J. Miller, in the uh, Complete Gospels from Polbridge Press. Uh, that's defensible, but I uh, sort of didn't want to do that, but I did kind of feel like Q ought to have a placeholder, so I isolated the sayings uh, in uh, in Al-Ghazali and put them there. And so that would be another one, another saying source. If you think the uniquely Lucan material, the so-called L source, and the uniquely Methian material, the so-called M source, were real separate sources, then you got a couple of more things that look kind of like Q, a bunch of parables and sayings, but uh, I feel pretty darn sure that uh, that stuff is all the free creation of Luke and Matthew, rather than, uh, than uh, part of an earlier uh, text. Okay, Scott Wilcox says, uh, I've had a question for some time about believers who say they get their morals from the Bible and that all morals are biblical in nature. Rape is a civilized, quote-unquote, moral failing, but there are no protestations of it in the Bible that I could find, though many references to it. By civilized, I think what he, God is saying is that, that though... Uh, savage in character, you do find it happening in civilizations, and therefore you would expect to find laws on the books against it, right? I think is what he means. 
Uh, he's asking, are there any in the Bible? Okay, believers will tell you that they get their morals from the Bible, but most believers that I know are repulsed by the idea of rape. How is the circle squared? Either the idea of rape is immoral and thus must be found in the Bible to guide believers on the topic, or the idea of rape is moral, moral question, and the believer's sense of its immorality is misguided. Uh, either way, it seems to me to be a sure indication of the strange inability of the believer to think. Are there clear statements expressing God's point of view on the topic of rape, or is it, as I assume, just another reflection of women's subjugation as property in the pre-civilized world? So you see the dilemma Scott is setting up. People say, without the Bible, we wouldn't have any morality. You know, we, we'd never be able to penetrate the darkness to know what the heck is moral and what uh, is. Is murder right or wrong? I don't know. Oh, luckily the Bible says. Uh, is, is, is theft right or wrong? I, I don't know. But oh, well, the Bible says so and so. And uh, if you take this approach that uh, we would have no moral guide, certainly not in conscience if we didn't have the word of God. Well, then you better find a, a, a moral question in the Bible uh, or it doesn't count, right? So is rape in the... Uh, by the way, about the the failure to think, I, I, this brings up an interesting larger question. Since Bible believers are stuck uh, having to decide, some of them anyway, about questions of ethics that do not come up in the Bible and couldn't have come up in the Bible because they didn't yet exist, like modern bioethics and stuff like that, right? Uh, well, what are you going to do? I mean, you could still say what the Bible does tell us is infallible and we ought to obey it, but what about this other stuff? Uh, these things that simply couldn't have come up then. Uh, what are we going to do? Well, I guess we'll just have to use our sanctified common sense. Hey, look, you're right, but if that's good enough for these other issues, what do you need the Bible for? Uh, I mean, it may have good stuff. I, of course, I think it does. But uh, if, you're, if your reasoning is good enough to deal with these questions that don't come up in it, then uh, doesn't that undermine the need for the thing in the first place? The rabbis understood good and well uh, that there was nothing impious about suggesting that certain topics did not come up in Scripture, right? So what did they do? Well, that's where the tradition of the elders came in. They extrapolated. They borrowed a technique of, of Greek. Uh, philosophers and others, which said, uh, maybe we can isolate a principle in cases that do come up in Scripture uh, and apply that to, to uh, ones that don't. Might be a bigger issue, might be a smaller one, but if the issue doesn't actually come up uh, in the Bible, but something analogous to it does, you know, the same principle presumably would apply, and that, that's entirely reasonable. Excuse me, but I think with uh, weird stuff like uh, you know surrogate motherhood and all that, holy mackerel, even the biblical extrapolation has to be so speculative that uh, it, it does kind of uh, humble one who might want to just quote the Bible to settle every uh, every matter because it's not that clear. Right, a lot of these things are not okay. Does the Bible? 
condemn rape. Well, yeah, I guess it does. A couple of times in Deuteronomy 22. Now, uh, well, it's all one passage here. Let me just read it. Uh, this uh, this is not to deny that you've got uh, some in the book of Numbers a command of Moses to the uh, Israelite warriors that they can just uh, kill all the the men of the enemy and their wives, but keep the virgins for themselves. I mean, then you're talking like about Al-Shabaab and uh, ISIS uh, type of stuff. That's in there too, but here we go with what it says. Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 through 29. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. This is unlike in Isis, right? She gets it too. Uh, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has... Oops. Uh, she has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country, the, the rapist, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Uh, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found... Um, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Well, uh, that seems a little contradictory. Oh, the, uh, yeah, the, the betrothed, the guy that um, rapes uh, a, an engaged woman dies she's simply the victim and will nothing will happen to her unlike in uh, traditionalist muslim cultures um but the uh the virgin uh not betrothed if she gets raped then uh what happens <laughs> they don't kill the rapist uh, they uh, instead what they do is to have a shotgun wedding and uh <laughs> And uh, the uh, and he and the rapist has to cough up the bride price that a regular suitor becoming engaged to her would have to pay the father for uh, taking her off dad's hands. And then it, it goes on to say that if the uh, the the, uh, the young uh, Lothario who couldn't control himself is such a skunk that the father cannot in good conscience um, let him have his daughter, then he still has to pay the bride price because nobody else is going to want her, being that she's used goods. And, and here, again, your question about the um, male ownership of women comes to the fore. So there's a little bit of slack in there, but, but just think of the... Uh, the outrage that uh, if he's not like, uh, I, I mean, I don't know where they would have drawn the line, right? But to think that uh, the, that the father could allow a guy who raped his daughter to go ahead and marry her. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they have something like the story of the rape of Dinah in, in Shechem, right? In uh, Genesis, where it says that this guy, I forget his name, um, uh, was it Abimelech or something? I don't know. Fred, 
Tarzan, anything but Sue, um, he was overcome with passion uh, for Dinah and couldn't control himself and raped her. That's disgusting. That ought to be punished. But at least uh, there's some hope that this guy simply, you know, couldn't wait and wanted to uh, to uh, marry her anyway, which he does, right? He, he does get permission to marry her, though Simeon and Levi use that as a pretext to uh, to kill him and all the other men of the, the town. Uh, but uh, maybe that's what they have in mind. It's not just some predator bastard who uh, sneaks up on the woman. Uh, I, I don't know, right? I mean, I'm just guessing what the, the dividing line could have been. But yeah, there there is at least this uh, heartily condemning rape. That's for darn sure. Hmm, let's see, feel like a little walk on the waves? Because Vesna asks, um, let's see, uh, about that. Could you please comment about some of the differences between the walking on water miracle stories found in Matthew 14, 22 through 36, Mark 6, 45 through 56, and John six fourteen through 21. It seems that John is making a different point from Mark and Matthew. Mark and Matthew are closer to one another, but still have some odd differences between them. In Mark and Matthew, Jesus sends the disciples ahead of him while he goes up the mountain to pray, which, excuse me, kind of makes you wonder, you know, when and how was he planning to, to join them? I mean, it sounds like this is simply a way to set the stage. The disciples are out on the lake in a boat, and Jesus isn't with them. Uh, it doesn't really make the motivation is, is not clear. It's just for the narrative, and that seems like fiction, as if the rest of it didn't. Um, okay, in John, however, Jesus seems to be hiding, not just praying in the mountains. In John, the disciples seem like they may be skipping out on Jesus, perhaps because the authorities are after him. It sounds like they're waiting by the shore in the evening, and when he doesn't show up, they just leave. You know, that could be right, yeah, that that would be a pretty good inference. In Matthew, they only get hundreds of yards from shore, but in John, they go way, way farther. In John, they're a few miles from shore. I looked at the map, and it seems that would put them halfway through a six-mile trip. In Mark, Jesus seems to be strolling along toward Capernaum and not even planning to get in the boat. Quote, he was inclined to pass them by, unquote. Only because they call out to him does he even interact with them. I've puzzled over that for, for a long uh, time. Uh, I don't know if it has anything to do with uh, Exodus 34, where Moses asks uh, Jehovah to see his face, and he says, well, that would be a bit much for you. Tell you what. You hide in that uh, cleft in the, that boulder over there, and I will pass by and tell you when it's safe to look. You can see my back, but you, you cannot see my face because no mortal can see me and live to tell. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, but he's, he's going past them. I, I think it has something to do with the, the numinous awe of the situation. 
that he uh, is uh, planning on making his own way across, as Merlin says in Excalibur. I have walked my way since the dawn of time. I, I don't know. Um, but then they, they ask him to uh, come into the boat with them. Um, let's see. Yeah. Okay, back to Vesna. In Matthew, Peter gets out and tries to walk on the water, too, then sinks, a quintessential Luke and Yoda. Uh, quoting Yoda, ruined film, did I not? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, there is no try, just do. Boy, I can't stand Yoda. A quintessential Yoda moment, yeah. Oddly, the challenge isn't so much whether Peter thinks he can walk on the water, too, but rather whether it really is Jesus out there on the water. And if not him, then who? I'd like to know the potential answers to that one. Well, I think I uh, sort of have uh, the, the idea that... Uh, Jesus says, hey, don't worry, it's me. And, of course, uh, that's easier said than done, right? To see a guy walking on the surface of the water, naturally going to be a little shook, shook up. Well, when Peter says, Lord, if it is you, uh, tell, or let's say, make me walk on the water to you. And he says, okay, get out of the boat and come on. Now, what does Peter mean? Well, if it really is Jesus... He knows Jesus to be a flesh-and-blood man, uh, and yet he's walking on the water. Well, I don't know how he does it, but if he's doing it, presumably he could make me do it too. I know I'm not a ghost. I know I'm flesh and blood. And so if, if he can do that, then I guess it really is Jesus, and there's nothing to worry about, even though it's pretty amazing. Otherwise, if he can't do that and Peter sinks, then uh, or Jesus refuses, then he figures Jesus is a ghost. Now, is he supposed to be the ghost of Jesus? That, that's an interesting question. And that brings up yet another uh, angle on this, uh, whether this is originally a resurrection appearance and that Jesus is seen by the sea, on the shore, which the grammar easily uh, allows, in which case they think he's a ghost because the last thing they knew, he was dead, right? And, and the story has been misplaced. Uh, so um, let me return to that, but that's another possibility. Okay, um, in Mark and Matthew, the storm becomes calm as soon as the disciples take him into the boat. In John, by contrast, the water is just starting to get rough, and the weather seems much less important. Instead, there seems to be some question about whether or not the disciples will even take Jesus into the boat. You know, it's, it says when they do, they were willing to take him into the boat as if they hadn't been beforehand. As soon as they do, they reach their destination right away, even though they're near the midpoint of a six-mile journey. Well, that uh, also sort of uh, sounds as if we're uh, talking about a well, a piece of fiction, or possibly a dream uh, that uh, Jesus, once he's there, not only are they safe to get to the other side, but they are at the other side. Uh, magic. That's the kind of thing you don't even usually see in the Gospels, but it does seem to be implied. Or, 
you could take the hint that suddenly they were there that uh, this whole time before the water got so choppy, these guys were all asleep in the boat. After all, in uh, the stilling of the storm, despite a storm, Jesus falls asleep in the boat. Well, suppose all of these guys did, and one of them had a dream that uh, Jesus was walking on the water, and they uh, awakened suddenly, and what do you know? They had drifted to their destination. I I don't know. I mean, it doesn't explicitly say that, but the the thing where, you know, as soon as he's in the boat, they're where they wanted to be. It, it sounds kind of like a, a dream sequence in a story. Um, now, what about these differences? In fact, the less significant they seem within the story, the more significant they are as hints as to whether there is literary dependence here. I tend to think that John is actually rewriting from at least a couple of the synoptic gospels and he's re- rewriting it freely. He's he's uh, not sticking as close to his source material as Matthew and Luke did when they were using material from Mark and Q. But there are times when it seems like he is also either also using other sources. Uh, or he's using oral tradition, that is, other written sources or oral sources. And uh, this ties in with a fascinating uh, couple of articles by um, by uh, Paul Achtemeyer uh, about, uh, the, about miracle catenae, or chains, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, there's a book called Jesus and the Miracle Tradition by Achtemeyer. It's an essay collection which contains both of these essays and loads more. And uh, in it, he says that, you know, there's this great um, uh, doublet. Uh, There's a sequence of seven little episodes in Mark that appear, the sequences appear um, to mirror one another, and they're separated by a little material between them, but I can't remember the order offhand, but you got a sea miracle, walking on the water in one sequence, stilling the storm in the other. You've got a uh, uh, feeding of thousands of people, the 5,000 in one case, the 4,000 in the other. You've got uh, a conflict with the Pharisees and scribes in both. There is... Um, um, a healing at a distance in both, and and so on and so on, that they're roughly the same, some of them, but some very close to one another. Why is this? And and interestingly, Luke, although Matthew reproduces this from Mark, Luke does not, which leads to interesting speculations. Did Luke have a copy of an earlier version of Mark that had only one of the sequences? Or did he omit the second one because he had other material to to include and uh, had to cut some Mark and stuff out to get it all into the standard length of a scroll? And so he saw it was kind of redundant and cut one version of it out. Well, hard to say, but the reason, if it's originally part of Mark, that is, if it wasn't added subsequent to the copy of Mark that Luke was working from, if it was original to Mark, then what we've always surmised about the two feeding stories, namely that they're two versions of the same story from oral tradition, 
the details differing slightly, would apply to the whole seven link chains, right? That, uh, that maybe both of them are tradition variants. Somebody had already linked these particular units together. They're not all exactly alike, but they're pretty close. They're at least analogous, uh, and they're in slightly different order, but you'd sort of expect that. I mean, I can't even keep the order straight as many times as I've read them without looking at the thing. Uh, and uh, he said that, yeah, it looks like Mark has two different sequences. Well, Ochtemeyer goes on to say that these seven items are a little bit more loosely paralleling the Book of Signs. In one of the sources, Bultmann suggested that the evangelist of the fourth gospel was using, uh, and uh, that, uh, that this may be a third version that was passed down in oral tradition and John may have preferred it to the, uh, the either of the Markan versions. Now, this bears on the question of what kind of sources did John use, the fourth evangelist, whoever he was, right? Um, and here I have to admit that the, diff the kind of differences you're pointing out between Matthew and Mark on the one hand and John on the other would seem to point to different oral traditions or whether they were still oral when the evangelist heard them or whether he was reading a version of them written down. So those differences seem like the kind of thing you find in the variations of oral tradition. I hope that was clear, but I'm only going to make it worse if I keep trying to explain it. So thanks for the question, Vesna. Richard Tracy. Uh, should we say Dr. Tracy, because he is. Would you please restate the case for there being an error in the traditional dating of the Gospels and Acts, that putting these events at the turn of the first centuries B.C. and A.D., that puts the Gospels and Acts in the wrong century because they occurred decades earlier or later. It's not that I argue for or against this alternate timeline, but that I'd appreciate hearing altogether the claims for this argument that you've stated in different episodes. Uh, in the... Okay, uh, got another one here, but what about that? Um, there's three different things you may be talking about and possibly mixing together, hence the, uh, the need for clarity. I've mentioned the, the fact that, as G.R.S. Mead pointed out in his great book, Did Jesus Live 100 B.C., there, there are Jewish and Jewish-Christian traditions found in uh, the Toledoth Yeshu, the Talmud, Epiphanius, and a couple other places, that Jesus was crucified uh, about 100 B.C., that he, it was part of the persecution of Pharisees by Alexander Janias. Uh, and uh, I say that this um, kind of wild difference in dating. And on the other end of it, uh, there's, uh, there's Irenaeus who thought Jesus was crucified uh, in the 40s under the emperor Claudius. Well, this kind of variation is very strange if the Gospels were in touch with any kind of historical memories at all. And it suggested to me that Christians kept uh, pushing up the dates for Jesus so as to keep a limited amount of time, a small distance between the bishops and their supposed 
gurus, the apostles, and then to Jesus, the old apostolic succession, shake the hand that shook the hand argument, that you couldn't have, uh, that, that as time went on and you were in the late first to early second century, you, uh, it would weaken your case to be the ones with the copyright on Jesus, as the Catholic bishops tried to do, if you admitted Jesus lived over a century before, so they kept moving him on up. This is a tendency we find in oral cultures, as in uh, Jan van Sina's great book, Oral Tradition as History, where he shows it in some African tribes. They keep moving the date of the creation of the world up closer and closer to their own time, or should I say, to keep the same interval uh, in one generation after another. The the creation was always a couple of generations ago. That's not an exact analogy, but I think it's perhaps the same kind of thing. Well, so that's one, one issue. And of course... My suggestion is speculative, obviously. Uh, then there's um, my oft-repeated argument that the Gospels were written decades later than mainstream critics uh, say, and they sort of uh, inherited this from apologists, who are trying to date the Gospels as early as they can plausibly do in order to shorten that that bridge period, that tunnel period between the ostensible time of the historical Jesus and the writing of the Gospels. And uh, so that they usually say Mark was written 60 to 70 AD or CE, as you prefer. Matthew was written 80 or so. So was Luke and John was written around 90. And uh, this just seems wrong to me because Mark seems to me to have a number of tree rings, uh, different, uh, well, not exactly dates, but rough deadlines for the end of the world uh, and keeps uh, several tree rings because it kept getting disappointed and and pushed up uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. And uh, that implies a longer period. Uh, between uh, whatever time Jesus was supposed to have lived and uh, the writing of the gospel. Also, if Hermann Dettering is correct, then uh, that uh, the little apocalypse underlying Mark 13 and Matthew 24 actually means to describe the events surrounding the the revolt of Bar Kokhba in about 132 AD or CE, then uh, Mark's got to be that late, which would dovetail with uh, my later date. And uh, then Matthew, it seems to me that it it is responding to formative Judaism in Yavna uh, about uh, 30 years after the the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans under Titus, that the issues debated, uh, especially in Matthew 23, for instance, call no man rabbi or Abba, etc., that uh, this stuff and the mention of a throne, a seat of Moses in the synagogue, and the use of rabbi as a title, these things are unattested in Jewish sources until the very late first or early second centuries. So that's when I would guess uh, Matthew was written. If uh, though, if you factor in Mark, his use of Mark, that would push it uh, a little later still. 
Luke seems Luke and Acts seem to have a lot in common with the Hellenistic novels that flourished in the second century CE, also with the apocryphal gospels uh, and the apocryphal acts from the second century. And uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, there's, uh, and there's back and forth use, I believe, between John and Luke. So that kind of implies we're dealing not even with the earliest edition of, uh, of Luke. Uh, let's see, and John, well, uh, that seems to presuppose an awful lot of Hellenistic religion being assimilated or reflected on or responded to. And, uh, and it, uh, it certainly has a higher Christology. Now, you know, I think as a mythicist that the whole thing began with a real high Christology, a celestial Christ who never came to earth, but he was humanized, and yet the grasp of that began to fade uh, as uh, stage by stage Jesus sort of was exalted back to where he was before, uh, and John uh, seemed, and in fact you can trace stages of the Johannine community at uh, Jerome Nere, N-E-Y-R-E-Y, in a book mistitled, a, um, what was it, a theology? I think a theology of revolt. So that makes it sound like it's liberation theology, but it's not. It, it shows how there's evidence of several stages of separation uh, between uh, Judaism and Christianity that, uh, again, are like tree rings in that gospel. And I think all of them must have been written shortly before Irenaeus refers to them in uh, his Against Heresies. And in fact, they're not really uh, referred to by name, even when some of the contents are quoted in any earlier Christian uh, writer. And then the third possible thing might be Lena Einhorn's theory that the Gospels are uh, putting Jesus early, namely at the time we usually think he lived, because he was really um, a revolutionist uh, prophet or messiah, like Theudas, the magician mentioned by Josephus, and the Egyptian would-be messiah, and the Samaritan Taheb, and so forth, who were uh, like a generation or so later, as we read about in Josephus. There are certain startling similarities. I mean, it's well worth reading her books on this. I haven't made up my mind on that one yet. Uh, it's It's not clear to me what the motive would have been on that. You can pretty much try to evade the uh, the revolutionary reputation of Christianity if it started that way in other ways, as my, as uh, S.G.F. Brandon pointed out in his uh, great book, uh, The Fall of Jerusalem and the Origin of the Christian Church, and again, Jesus and the Zealots. So there, that's... Uh, oh. Uh, that's about all I got to say uh, in short form, if you can call that short on that. I hope it helps. Uh, those various books would be good to read on that. And of course, I present the case for my version of the late dating of the Gospels in the pre-Nicene New Testament, or reprinted in the Human Bible New Testament, and I do the same thing again in my forthcoming um, Holy Fable in the chapters on each Gospels. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay, he asks next, in the first centuries B.C. and A.D., what was or were the lingua franca, 
or plural, in the Roman Empire, like everybody is common second language. I've read a Roman scholar saying it's Greek, but I can't imagine Latin-speaking Roman citizens in Rome talking with one another in Greek. Apparently they did, though. Uh, Greek had, uh, the real issue is, uh, I mean, it's sort of like Hebrew. It was still known in the Holy Land, but everybody spoke Aramaic. Uh, and uh, it was the same sort of a thing. Apparently, Latin was known and used in official documents and stuff like that, and the Catholic Church eventually adopted it. But it seems like popularly everybody spoke Greek because it was kind of like Esperanto. Everybody all over the empire in the wake of Alexander's conquests and spreading of Greek culture, uh, everybody had learned Greek. Um there is an interesting case made by Charles Cutler Torrey in his book Our Translated Gospels and elsewhere, uh, where he says, uh, don't be too quick to dismiss Aramaic as an ecumenical language because that became widespread similarly uh, during the time of Persian dominance over the whole Middle East. Uh, and he, he's arguing that the Gospels were all written originally in Aramaic and then later translated into Greek. And, and uh, well, wouldn't they have wanted to translate it into the lingua franca, which comes from, which means the French language, right? Because that was the international language of diplomacy before English was. Well, um, well, he says, uh, Tori says, Aramaic was the common language. You might speak who knows what else, Phrygian, Arabian, uh, whatever, but you would have to know Aramaic. And uh, at, this was still the case. Uh, of course, he dates the Gospels pretty early. He places Mark at 40 AD. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that's enough to save his theory, but uh, I still find uh, Tori very, uh, very interesting with a lot of interesting insights that stem from this paradigm, this possibility that uh, is underlying Aramaic. Um, let's see. Uh, in Bible times, what did people assume the distance was between the earth and the firmament? I don't know, but I think it must have been assumed to be pretty uh, pretty short, if only for the sake of the ascension stories, the, the one in the Western text of Luke and in Acts chapter 1, but also the various Greco-Roman ones, because uh, I get the impression it's more like Superman flying into the sky than somebody taking a, undertaking a voyage into the depths of outer space. I don't think they even thought that the... Uh, that outer space was uh, very distant. After all, in Genesis 1, the, the stars are like ceiling lamps set into the firmament. So they, they couldn't really, have, if that's what they thought, they couldn't really have uh, thought it was any huge distance. When uh, Jesus says that in the end, the stars will fall from the heavens, clearly he's not 
thinking that they're going to cover light years to get to Earth. Uh, and, and so I think they must have thought it was pretty darn close. In fact, one ancient Greek philosopher was laughed off stage when he claimed that the sun might be as huge as 10 miles across. And, and that gives you the idea. I mean, if, if they thought it was, uh, it, it was uh, a lot smaller, but still, if you could make the suggestion it was 10 miles, you, you're not thinking the, uh, the tip of the firm is very far. Let's see, then he says, May I recommend two novels? Richard Beard has published two titles of a planned trilogy of loosely connected books set in New Testament times. Lazarus is Dead recounts the story of two boyhood friends, Lazarus and Jesus, who become estranged and whose lives take very different paths. Uh, the second book, Acts of the Assassins, describes the work of the Roman army officer assigned to investigate a series of grisly murders. Both novels are examples of constrained writing, which is a literary technique, says Wikipedia, in which the writer is bound by some condition that forbids certain things or imposes a pattern. The Constraint of Lazarus is Dead is the number of seven. The number seven. The novel includes seven key scenes from the Gospels in chapters numbered seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and with each chapter divided into the number of sections that matches its chapter number. And Acts, uh, you sure David Oliver Smith didn't write this? Uh, and Acts of the Assassins is bound by its setting in a modern police department whose timeline melds with that of the first century A.D. Both novels succeed brilliantly in making thrillers out of stories whose endings we already know. Okay, Richard, thank you. Never heard of them otherwise. Ooh, who sent this one? Uh, ah, Brian Blaze from Rhode Island. Just like H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I've been reading Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and in one part he says concerning passed down memorized traditions... The longest Pauline example of rehearsing Jesus' tradition, to which, because of its demonstrably early date, we have already referred more than once, is here again instructive. A close verbal parallelism between, first Corinth uh, between 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 25 and Luke 22:19 through 20 cannot plausibly be explained by a literary relationship between the texts, since Luke. Luke's gospel cannot have been available to Paul, and Luke shows no acquaintance, acquaintance with Paul's letters. Only strictly memorized oral tradition, memorized in Greek, can explain the high degree of verbal resemblance. Here are the two passages, 1 Corinthians 11.23-25 in the New Inter International Version. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
and Luke 22, 19-20, NIV. Luke, I don't think I came up with one uh, for him. Anyway, uh, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Clearly, these are similar, but do they represent some kind of memorized tradition, either oral or written, that the two authors shared? Is it drawing on some non-biblical text uh, at all that uh, Baucom wouldn't mention? Does it matter that it was supposedly memorized in Greek, as Baucom stresses? How would you respond to his claim here? Well, uh, the, he he's figuring that if it was memorized in Aramaic, because, of course, Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic on the occasion, then you would expect some difference in the Greek of both 1 Corinthians and Luke, because it's not a word-for-word correspondence. I mean, the gist is the same, right? But, uh, but you would have a little more variation than you do. And so he figures they must have memorized the formula in Greek. Uh, both of them. I uh, differ with the dating, as as you know. I, I think Luke is is second century. Uh, there are good arguments that the author of Luke and Acts did know the Pauline epistles, though it's hard to say. You can argue that either way. Richard Purvo makes a pretty darn good case for it, though. Um. And I think the Pauline epistles are patchwork quilts that are written in the late 1st, early 2nd century, so a little difficult to tell. Plus, since uh, both do feature interpolations, and uh, only and, and though, though there may be more than the ones we are pretty sure about, William O. Walker, Jr. makes a good case, I believe it's he, uh, somebody does, that uh, that passage in 1 Corinthians is a post-Pauline interpolation like several other ones in 1 Corinthians. And so that, yeah, one of them might have been copied from the other. That's, uh, Balcom is almost arguing in a circle by, I, I, I hesitate to use that term, but what he says so depends upon early conventional datings that he's almost uh, making his conclusion in advance. Uh, but uh, and there's an added problem if you look at the texts of of First Corinthians, or as the Brits and Donald Trump like to say, one Corinthians. I always cringe at that when all the pundits say, "Look how stupid Donald Trump is." He said two Corinthians. What you mean, like all British New Testament scholars and some Americans do? I don't know if Trump knows that or not, but it's not incorrect. Right? Um, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt if you don't know uh, what he knew and what he didn't. Anyhow, uh, I mean, whether you're for or against Trump, right? I'm just saying it's a little unfair what they said. Okay. Um, if you look at these passages in the, all three of the Gospels and First Corinthians, which I, I still say that, uh, they don't quite agree, nor do different copies of each one of those books agree. Uh, and, and why is this? Well, they probably reflect ongoing liturgical 
changes. And just as the text of the Lord's Prayer in Luke and Matthew differ between copies of the same gospel and between early copies of Luke and Matthew, it's the same thing. The scribes either changed it uh, to uh, to fit the other gospel, assuming that they should all sound alike, or to uh, fit with current liturgical use. I mean, look at the the way the, the words of institution are given in the Catholic Mass, the new and eternal covenant. It doesn't say eternal anywhere. Of course, they're not claiming it does, right? They've taken some liberty with the, uh, the wording of the liturgy. Well, either these New Testament scribes felt free to do that, or they did it without realizing it. Just by reflex, they may have written, uh, they're ostensibly copying the text from an earlier manuscript, but when they get to the Lord's Prayer or the words of institution, it may just kick in, oh, I know what this says, I hear it every week in church. (laughs) Maybe you didn't. And so it's very difficult to say uh, which uh, version is, is even original to which God. So, um, I think things are a little foggier. Mm-hmm. Do I want to do another one here? Uh, yeah, okay, John Brockman. Let's see here. Um, okay, so I've been watching Steve Shives's, uh S-H-I-V-E. Uh, S. Uh, Shives's YouTube series in which he takes apart Strobel's The Case for Christ. This topic annoyed the crap out of Stephen enough that he went ahead and sourced it out. Turns out there's a good reason apologists and fundies tend not to cite their sources. The sources don't support them. By the way, this is also true of... Uh, uh, what's his name? Hugh Niblett, a great, uh, supposedly great Mormon uh, apologist. He made all kinds of references that are not there. Anyway, um, oh, let's see. Uh, to summarize the one particular one he's interested in about the uh, the Gospels being too early to be fiction. He says, they're bastardizing work by A.N. Sherwin-White. One of those hyphenated British names. The apologist's claim is that more than two generations of time are necessary for myths and legends to develop, which is false. Uh, See Roswell, New Mexico. Before that time, the oral tradition is true and accurate, and the gospel is true and accurate because the stories about Yeshua ben Yusuf, Jesus son of Joseph, started circulating immediately. Uh, But what were Sherwin White's claims? By the way, he was an evangelical. Uh, What did he write? It's from the book he wrote, Roman Law and Roman Society in the New Testament, which compares the New Testament to other historical documents at the time, and on that basis concludes that there's no reason to doubt their basic historicity. In the book, he comments on the length of time it takes for mythology to displace historical fact, but he doesn't set out any sort of claim to a hard and fast rule like two generations, uh, nor did he do any calculations like that. He acknowledged that the facts can be muddled by, uh, or was that muddied, uh, by bias from the get-go, but claimed that facts aren't hopelessly lost even after two generations. It's like Harnack said, the same sort of thing, and Albert Schweitzer. 
Um, but as D.F. Strauss said, unfortunately, you, you can't give a source any more credibility than the wackiest elements of it. It just shows that it undermines the credibility of if this guy believed that, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead happened at the time of the crucifixion. What else uh, had he made up? Anyway, um, uh, let's see. Sorry. Uh, so the apologists are inflating Sherwin White far beyond any sort of claim he makes, which claim isn't even necessarily valid, because there's no meticulous study or examination of that sort of record, um, oral to written tradition within a few generations of the events in question. And Sherwin White never claimed that there can be no falsification of an oral tradition prior to uh, the two-generation mark. Just the opposite, in fact. Sherwin White's book only briefly touches on the subject of historicity and admits that it's not basing the claims of the book on that sort of thing. Sherwin White admitted that it still takes critical historical methodology to find the solid core in the tradition, if such there is. In other words, some apologists have taken Sherwin White's statements and completely reversed them, then inflated them wildly, from Sherwin White's claim that it's possible to sift out nuggets of historical fact even after generations of mythical accretion, and taking into account the presence of bias in both the origin of the oral tradition and the individual who ended up writing that tradition down, to the apologetic claim that oral tradition of the gospel began circulating with a, within a very few years of the crucifixion, buttressed by ridiculous claims that a copy of Mark has been dated to 40, I'm sorry, to A.D. 50, and thus absolutely must have been true. So it's an argument cantilevered out over nothing and resting on poor Bulgeschichte. By the way, I tell you, I found out that uh, Bulgeschichte was coined by the great New Testament redaction critic uh, Norman Perrin. That's great. Uh, he ought to get the credit. And certainly as good a term as Heilsgeschichte. Yeah, um, uh, Sherwin White uh, does, I think, tilt a bit too close to apologetics, but, but he's not like these guys who are abusing his work, as you say. But I would recommend to everybody reading Bart Ehrman's nifty book, Jesus Before the Gospels, which is all about oral tradition and uh, memory studies and social memory studies. It, it really just destroys and demolishes any of these apologist claims. Uh, that uh, and in fact, I think he almost goes easy on them. Uh, it's uh, but it's it's a great book and it really destroys this whole uh, bunch of nonsense about the gospels are written by eyewitnesses or based on eyewitness testimony or uh, the tradition was uh, meticulously remembered by those. Uh, ancients who were in oral cultures and didn't have writing and all that. It just shows what bunk all of that is. Why do apologists keep uh, up doing this stuff? Uh, it's election season, I assume. You're probably looking at some of the election coverage. and No matter 
which side you're on. I'm sure you can look at uh, the the spin doctors for any of these candidates and uh, detect when they're spinning, where you can't even imagine what they think is true, right? They're they're just saying what they think they have to to make their candidate look good. Uh, I see it in the, the advocates of some more than others, but you can find it with any candidate, and not only this time, right? Well, that's what apologists are doing. They're trying to sell you uh, a particular belief. It's their hobby horse. They've not reached their views on the basis of an inductive study of, uh, of the evidence. I mean, everybody has presuppositions that they don't recognize, but these guys sort of will admit theirs because they accuse you of bias if you don't share them. And uh, it I, I, that's why I'm increasingly impatient with apologists, especially ones that claim simply to be New Testament critics. Yeah, right. Well, that's it for today's exciting episode of The Bible Geek, but I'm going to try to... Uh, do more uh, of them um, a little more often, if this works, right? I've been having some trouble uploading these things, and I think maybe I've got it licked. Uh, even if I don't, you'll be able to access this from my website or something, but I think uh, we can probably get the thing back on track. Uh, if you uh, want to become a Patreon supporter, may I uh, humbly request that you do so. We're always in chronic big trouble around here. Uh, and uh, let's see, if you want to just donate, uh, you know, one-shot thing without Patreon through, through PayPal on my website, hey, that'd be great too. But if you're not inclined or if you're unable don't give it a second thought. I want you to be following the Bible Geek anyway. So thanks a lot, and I will see you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.